So I finished my shift and then I jumped on a train and I went over there and I found this place called The Coffee Company in Carlisle Street in Balaclava. And I knocked on the door and I said, I heard you might need a coffee roaster. I'll, I'll work for a couple of weeks for free. And if you like me, keep me on. And that was the beginning. I realized after seven years that I'd been treading water and I hadn't gained seven years of experience. I probably gained about three. And then I had the fourth year, four repetitions of the same year over and over again. And I wasn't evolving. And welcome back to the Fifth Wave Podcast. I'm Jeffrey Young, Editor-in-Chief of Coffee Business Magazine, Fifth Wave. Today, we're having a conversation with Ross Quayle, Sales Director for Asia for Hemro International, a global coffee equipment manufacturer specializing in grinders. When Ross and I hopped on our conversation a couple of months ago, my intention was to gain his insight and perspectives on building a career in coffee. But as we spoke, I was constantly being blown away by his knowledge, his experience, and his insights. For instance, the long-term impacts of COVID on the Australian cafe market, the future of espresso, and how he had navigated his own career. This conversation was so good that we decided to offer it to you in full. So grab a coffee, sit back, and enjoy this great conversation with Ross Quayle. A big welcome here to Ross Quayle, who's Sales Director for Hemro South Asia and Australia. Hi, Ross. Thank you so much, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. So, Ross, let's get started with the, the topic of the moment, COVID. How has it affected your world and the world of coffee in Australia? The effects have been far-reaching and, and, and quite fundamental. Unfortunately, Melbourne uh, and Victoria has had some outbreaks that saw us really struggle with some containment measures in hotels and that then spread out into the community and it resulted in a lockdown that has been for almost six months in Melbourne. There's been a brief period where measures were relaxed but at present the hospitality industry is is effectively ground to a halt. There are many, many businesses that are unable to operate and those that can are operating in a takeaway only fashion and were it not for the support of the government with Job Seeker and Job Keeper, with some additional measures to small business as well, we would have seen widespread devastation of the hospitality industry. So it would be safe to say that right now our industry is at a critical point and we don't expect probably even half the businesses that are existing pre-COVID to still be here when we reach the other side of this difficult situation. Wow. And are those effects being seen in other parts of Australia or is it specifically to the state of Victoria and Melbourne? The effects are fairly specific to Victoria. Western Australia and South Australia are largely unaffected. So anywhere that you would have a gathering of people, you can effectively say they're not open. So whether it be a gym, a pub, a restaurant or otherwise... And not at all. I think we're allowed to have maybe only uh, a witness and a couples for a for a wedding, if I'm not mistaken. And I think there is an allowance for ten people at a funeral. I think that's probably one of the only instances where people can group together. But that is it. It really doesn't allow for for hospitality really to be hospitable. Is it too early to say what the permanent changes are? Are there any obvious? changes that you can see are going to be permanent ones? Absolutely. Look, there are hospitality industries in every country. And I think what 
uh, often drives the growth of these industries is liquidity of businesses and access to credit and I guess further financial support. So we've seen a, a you know like a tremendous growth in the Australian coffee industry, primarily up and down the eastern seaboard, and that was due to a portion of uh, I guess free on loan with equipment going into businesses to support wholesale people recruiting new coffee accounts. But to a degree also, there was finance through you know different mechanisms of lease-to-own businesses that was very accessible. So with a uh, driver's license and an ABN, you might be able to ring up and, and uh, receive as much as thirty dollars or $40,000 uh, as a line of credit. So with that in mind, there were very few barriers to entry. I mean, all you need to do was get a lease, buy some equipment, call some suppliers and you could get underway. But the differences I think we'll face on the other side will be quite considerable. And I think they stem from the fact that now we've had a Royal Commission prior to COVID into safe lending practices, both from banks, but also these leasing bodies. And then also the reality that we're faced with isn't that so many suppliers have been under duress through people that have been unable to pay their accounts coming into COVID because simply people's businesses ground to a halt and they were struggling to pay rent or, or basic insurances or, or wages or anything else like that. So I think what, what we're going to see on the other side is a return much more so to, to a like a, a transactional cash economy in that not so much that it's, it's paper money out there, but if you buy something, you very well may be paying for it immediately. The days of getting 30-day terms or 60-day terms might be gone because a lot of people require that cash liquidity to propel their business. And COVID has really sucked the reserves and the cash reserves out of so many businesses that I think for a long time, people will be really reticent to give, I guess, that sort of financial flexibility to customers because if we have another outbreak of COVID and we go back into lockdown, you know, the likelihood of being able to, you know, recoup on debts may be almost impossible. Any any other sort of Long-standing, I mean, things like technologies or, or the way customers will behave post this, life will have a new normal? Absolutely. I mean, I think this going to give rise to some forced innovation and that being, well, can we automate a process? Can we bring in a product that will reduce our reliance on human capital within the business and, and lower our costs? So from a hemorrhoid sort of point of view, you've got grind by weight grinders and elements of automation that is almost hands-free grinding that Hemro, for instance, is feeling is very, very important. In other areas, you probably remember at, at our previous talks, you know, my work colleagues in Matt Perger talked about the rise of the super automatic machines. I mean, in Australia, the effect that super automatic machines have had in dispensing coffee in places like 7-Eleven and other places like that have made coffee even more accessible to people. So I think we'll see a big change in the delivery of coffee to people, we're still going to have that that hyper focus on reducing the wait time for people because we are all busy people and we have a, a given tolerance to it. But I think there'll be a relaxing on some of the expectations of that barista crafting the coffee potentially in some environments. In other places, there'll be a hyper focus on it because that'll be that that method of differentiation for some businesses that continues to make them, uh, I guess, part of the, the leading edge of specialty. So I think we're going to see a separation. And I think a, another really important aspect to take into account in all of this is that we have to realize that for so long, 
the pod machine market has been growing a silent audience of espresso lovers that were not previously part of our uh, cafe demographic. But what COVID has done has drawn the attention back to, well, I can't go to a cafe now. So what will I do? I still want to drink my coffee and my experience is relative to a cafe experience and I want a coffee like that. So what we've actually seen is a dramatic rise in the purchasing of domestic espresso equipment. In Australia, it's been huge. You've got sales of you know your Lamazocco Linear Minis the, and the other similar brands of machines. I guess the gateway to those has been, as I said, sometimes this pod audience, but also uh, other people that previously just went to cafes, but now say, well, I can't go there. I'm going to have it at home. So there's a fundamental shift in where people are drinking coffee. And there's been some really startling trends from the point of view of consumer buying behavior. I mean, supermarkets have become the place for a huge proportion of society to buy their coffee. And and not to mention too many brands, but a, but a major European German supermarket was currently doing around 40 tons of coffee a week nationally. When COVID hit, that has expanded to 80 tons a week. And you're talking about I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a massive amount of coffee. And in Australian coffee terms, maybe your largest account being a, a very large burger chain might be something in the order of 120 tonnes a week or, or thereabouts. So you're talking about the creation of one of the largest amounts of coffee consumption, but being fueled on the domestic level. So I think some of the changes we're going to see is an embedded increase in domestic espresso consumption. And with the work from home crowd probably being about 5% of the workforce and potentially doubling or even tripling up to maybe 15%, the residual amount of domestic espresso interaction is going to remain really, really high. So in answer to your question in short, I think there's going to be fundamental changes between the way people interact with coffee within the home. And there's going to be far-reaching effects within how people commercially interact with coffee through, I guess, a B2C process. It'll be fast and quick. There'll be a potential to be hands-free, but there'll also be the, the staple of what has been Australian coffee, and that will be that dedication to specialty in every form that they can. We just might find that that process is becoming a little bit more harder to find because if we can't get out and gather in these large groups, it'll be about a specialized experience that may occur within five to seven minutes as opposed to you know, that cafe style where we might sit there for an hour and a half. That, that evolution is going to happen. That is, of course, unless we simply move past this and it never happens again. But I just, I don't get the feeling that COVID is really going to go away anytime soon. Yeah. And with your hat on for South Asia, do you, do you see similar trends and similar impact happening? Absolutely. I mean, look, if you look at the market from a, from a segmentational viewpoint, you have your sort of super premium, premium commercial and entry level. For me, there's been an expansion on an entry actually, level. Actually, could you just um, slow that one down, that segment? So you've got your super premium. Super premium, premium, commercial and entry level segments, if you were to sort of broadly categorize the market. There's been, for my mind, a little bit of a shift. There's pressure from the middle, both up and down in the market. The downward pressure has been an expansion into the entry-level equipment because people are cost sensitive. So there's a lot of people that still may want to expand or or buy uh, equipment, but 
they don't have the budgets to do so. There isn't the finance available and the things that I've spoken to already. So we've certainly found that there's certainly a growing interest for more affordable espresso equipment. And equally, there are people that are existing within the middle of the market in that commercial level, whereby they're looking now to differentiate themselves. There's a lot of pressure at the bottom in the market. And then how do I say to myself, well, am I just in the commercial segment or do I want to be perceived as premium in a highly competitive market? So again, that brings another focus to the type of equipment that you put within your business. So obviously with the Hemro has introduced some newer models, uh, an E80 Supreme, which is essentially tagged as grinding unlimited, is the fastest grinder in its class with the volume capabilities that are just phenomenal. In terms of an 18 grand shot, it can do no less than 10 cycles in a minute. So for a lot of people that that is time saving, that will allow people to be engaged to be in super premium but it will do the work of two grinders. So the, the investment in, in equipment is less, but it still retains that high level. So for us, there's movement at either end. The other part to all of this is there is a wonderful, uh, and this has come from working in coffee and then understanding Australia's role within the region, but also the interaction. There are a lot of follower markets, Jeff, in, in South Asia. You have Thailand as a follower market. Indonesia is quite a large market. But you know when you have numbers pre-COVID of 60 to 70,000 Indonesians visiting Victoria every year, there's a huge amount of cultural cross-pollination. So with the elements that succeed within Australia uh, being Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, those coffee trends are then carried into the other cities. So for me, certainly there is an interrelatedness between if your machine and your equipment can succeed in Australia, that's often seen as the, the Paris to Dakar of equipment tests. And then that machine then is then validated in other markets. And so you'll see, you know, nice residual sales with those proven pieces of equipment into Indonesia, certainly into China, Thailand, and even Philippines to an extent as well. Now, I'm really curious to hear about your career in coffee, Russ. I understand you began your career at the age of 19. Well, I went to school in uh, Geelong about an hour out of Melbourne, and I had no idea what I wanted to do when I was finishing year 12. I, I was a languages student. I really enjoyed hospitality. I'd done some sort of part-time work for my you know, teenage years to buy the shoes or the, the CD or, the, or back then the tape that one might want. My elder brother, who's about 18 months older than me, uh, got a scholarship to the Defence Force Academy. And I thought, well, I've got no idea what I want to do. I'll aim high too. And I managed to um, also get a scholarship to the Defence Force Academy. And then I quickly realised, Jeff, that it was probably of greater benefit to the military if I returned to the community. So after four months, I did return. I was excellent at ironing and making beds, but not so much with the warfare type aspects. I, I realised that that really wasn't going to work for me, but it, it was a great experience nonetheless. I fell back into hospitality and then I took uh, the chance to take a degree at RMIT in Melbourne. And I did applied science in hospitality management. And, and really from there, I, I got into coffee and I was also a waiter and doing some fine dining stuff. And then one day in my, probably towards the, the end of my degree, and I was just finishing up, I overheard a conversation where there was a, a roaster that was at a place not far from where I lived, who told his uh, boss that he could, you know, go and shove it. And then they'd, they'd watch this coffee roaster walk out. And I'd been a barista at the time and I, I'd overheard the conversation. I said to these people, whereabouts was this? 
and they told me where. And so I finished my shift and then I jumped on a train and I went over there and I found this place called The Coffee Company in Carlisle Street in Balaclava. And I knocked on the door and I said, I heard you might need a coffee roaster. I'll, I'll work for a couple of weeks for free. And if you like me, keep me on. And that was the beginning. It was a very European culture. For those of people who don't know Balaclava, that's the sort of, it's very much the European and a Jewish center within Melbourne in that Balaclava area. So it was uh, Czechs, Poles, Russians, Yugoslavs, and all of those European countries that all, you know, bought loads and loads of coffee. We were a little shop and we were doing 750 kilos of coffee a week with no wholesale, just people buying it for home. So it was truly a, an amazing experience. And I was captivated and we did a lot of coffees back then. And then skipping forward, I, I spent probably six or seven years there. In that time, I got involved in some coffee judging and began my journey with the Australian Specialty Coffee Association. I then went over to another company called Jasper Coffee, just at, I guess, as the, the start of the fair trade movement. And that was in, I think, 2000, 2001. And there was also a time of uh, Cup of Excellence coming into existence. And so that was another really interesting time. We also had Paul Bassett around then too, being the first Australian World Barista Champion. And so a lot of that really conspired to really make a concentration of, of coffee culture and a bit more awareness to it in, in Melbourne. Back then, you might go to a cafe, but you never saw coffee industry being something of a, of a legitimate career. But, but at that point, there were the beginnings of, of it being possible that you could stay in this industry. And so I kept going with it. Jasper Coffee was another sort of four years or so where I was roasting. And then I was getting into sales because a lot of the time there was a disconnection between those that were selling the coffee and those that actually understood and prepared the coffee. So I found a, I found a great little uh, niche for myself in being able to speak authentically about coffee as a coffee judge, but also as a coffee roaster, and then having a strong background as a barista. That lent itself to me being able to walk into a cafe and begin to prepare a coffee for somebody, not just sell it, but help them experience it. And I think a lot of people were starting to do that back then in Melbourne. Then at um, skipping forward again, I was involved in a startup of Axel Coffee for a short while, and then I, I stepped out of that and I took some time out for family. My two daughters were born roughly around then, so I took a bit of time out and I worked part-time for Salvatore Malatesta at St. Ali in Sensory Lab, just as Sensory Lab was starting out. And then I just settled in. And after a little while, I, I looked at the business and I thought, well, there's nothing wrong with this business. It's it's a new business and I can exert a, an influence over it and I really love what I'm doing. So, you know, I tapped the parents on the back and said, can I take a loan? And I uh, knocked on the door and I said to Sal, look, you know, I'd like to buy in and I bought in. And then that was the start of a, a wonderful eight years that were some of the hardest that I've ever worked, but also certainly set me up with a great appreciation for, I guess, looking for the opportunities in coffee. With Sensory Lab, there was a business that grew from back then about 100 kilos a week up to, I think, in excess of 10 tons a week. And that really was an experience in understanding how specialty coffee could move from being cafes and, and a conversation into the broader community and into places that were multi-store, you know, 100 stores with um, places in Australia like Soul Origin, which take a specialty coffee standpoint and really deliver on a coffee. So that experience there gave me 
great exposure to building a coffee plant. We did a, a, a fantastic operation there that had, you know, a, a green bean procurement arm that, that was firmly lodged in specialty, but with a strong commercial understanding built around it to make sure that we we could make cost efficient but great tasting blends. We learned a lot about packaging, about you know reducing our costs in delivering coffee to people. And then obviously taking that coffee to the masses. So it wasn't just about fighting for cafes because competition was incredibly fierce. We were really fortunate to get opportunities to work with businesses like David Jones and the food halls, which really started to validate for people that specialty coffee businesses could go out and compete there with incumbents, the really big boys that were doing, you know, 40, 50, 60 tons a week. So that was a really exciting time. And I think it gave me the confidence to be able to know that with the right drive and with the right, I guess, stewardship, specialty coffee can move into the broader market and not just be focused on high-end cafes. And I think that was a really exciting part of my career. Then coming more recently, I'd spent a lot of time with um, St. Elian Centre Lab and I was looking for a change. So I sold my shares. I had an opportunity to work with Slayer Espresso as the Asia-Pacific sales director, and that was another wonderful opportunity. Not having worked in in equipment before, it was new to me and I found that interesting in that I, I had a good handle on the other aspects of green coffee procurement to you know roasting and, and uh, factory production to sales and a lot of other levers you know, that, that drove specialty coffee, but I didn't understand enough about equipment. So Slayer provided me with a unique opportunity to understand brands and equipment. And then more recently, I had a tap on the shoulder from Hemro who said to me, look, you know, we like what you're doing. Would you consider doing what you're doing with us? And I've had a good relationship with Zia Bora, who's a fantastic professional within the coffee business. And obviously, look, I wanted to line up a plan to obviously grow and have a bit more of a global view to coffee and be a little bit less focused just on Australia and our immediate region. So here I am today working with Hemro, and obviously I'll be focusing my energies to become, I guess, a, a contributor in, in sales and to the organization more broadly on a global level by, I guess, helping to share the coffee IQ that I bring from a background at the grassroots level, but also understanding where is specialty going and, and how can we be a part of it? Fantastic. You know, where do you think careers are going in coffee, you know, currently for, you know, obviously, you know, leaving aside the, the difficult times that we've got right now, but what, what are careers going to look like in coffee going forward? I think what's irked me a lot is that people have come into the coffee industry only as a means to support themselves before they go on to their other careers. And I think there's been a tremendous loss of IP in the hospitality industry and the coffee industry specifically over the years. But what I hope is that with the evolution of coffee businesses, we've got now, I guess if I look on a more of a micro level, there are baristas that were head baristas that were some of the best bars in Melbourne that knew everything. They know their stuff. They know how to make coffee. They know how long it takes to make it. They understand costs and and a lot of other things. And now these baristas are no longer in their 20s. They're in their 30s. They're starting to get partners and settle down and look to buy a house. And at the same time that they want to get off bar, but they want to still be involved in the industry. And because the larger end of town, you know, your, your larger 
scale roasters now want to remain in contact with specialty and to be almost predict how to be there too and land at the right position. This generation that we've seen in the last 10 to 15 years of maturing specialty coffee baristas, those with a little bit of business acumen and those who've done a little bit of study along the way are actually finding themselves in the midst of a really exciting time. There are baristas that I know that are now working in R&D and development, but also influencing business decisions on what equipment to buy, for instance. They're also influencing how people are roasting coffee. They're influencing how people can connect with an audience rather than just um, supply them with a product. So now's a really good time because there's a maturity cycle in coffee that's meaning that in one element, Hemro would be an example of it, there has been, uh, I guess, a cyclical change to the people in the business. There's some people such as myself that have been in coffee that are now moving into a corporate level and a sales director level that have come strictly from coffee. I haven't come from other industries doing sales. I've come just from coffee. So I think the evolution of what we've got in the next sort of five years is those that have the wherewithal to either utilize their education engage in some further education, being some post-grad or some more business-related skills, will be able to take the skills that they've learnt and take their networks and really become a really valuable part of the organisations of the future with coffee. That's what I think, because sadly, we still don't have any coffee schools. We have great competitions around the world that drive specialty coffee, and, and yours is one of them. But what else is on the other side? You know, you don't want to be a, a barista and effectively be out to pasture, you know, at 30. So what's happening now is is a really exciting time for people to grow up, maybe get on their big boy pants and and become a professional and really contribute those years of experience back into an industry growing further. It's been a joy, for, I mean, from my point of view, to watch this industry mature. And yeah, as you say, there's, there's some incredible skills out there not being fully exploited. So you, you've done the entrepreneur, you've done the corporate. Would you ever see yourself, you know, starting another business, starting something new? Well, first of all, I love Hemro, so let's let's just get out of the way. So, but I think for me, when I look at what I'm doing now and I look at my trajectory, I've got a very clear idea. For me, it would be wonderful if I have the wherewithal and the ability to reach a, you know, CSO level within Hemro. To me, I think within Australia sort of middle and senior management that I've experienced, it is very Australian-centric and there is a lack, maybe insular at times is, is the right word. And, and I think from my point of view, in order to carry myself through my late 40s, early 50s, having a strong international exposure to a corporate world that exists with coffee and much more of a global outlook, I think that's going to position me much better that when I do position myself, should something arrive in the future, that I've got a very good understanding of how to work within the global coffee economy, because there's a connectivity that exists now that has never been there. I mean, if you have an Instagram page, if you have a, a success within social media and a brand and you, you compete at a competition or otherwise, you can be catapulted to somewhere very, very different very, very quickly. But if you don't have an awareness of those markets and you don't have an awareness of what opportunity presents in those different markets culturally and, and otherwise, you really miss the boat. So from my point of view, it's a very deliberate move to expose myself to the rest of the world, not be too 
Aussie-centric and say, you know, we do great coffee here. Because right now, what Australia does in, you know, did in five years, I watch Asia do it in one once they see us do it. The evolution is much, much faster. So I'm really looking to see how we can be mindful about our coffee. We can be very considered about how we use our coffee. Obviously, the conservation of resources and the other things like that really make for, I guess, for me looking to be, how can I contribute meaningfully into the future, but really be able to interact with the world rather than just looking what's just over the back fence. So if you were looking back at your career, more than 20-year career in this industry, is there anything you would have done earlier or changed to take you on a faster journey? Or Absolutely. At the early stages, I think I was a great employee because I was incredibly loyal to businesses. I haven't had that many jobs in the time that I've been in because I felt very driven to support the success of the business that I was within. And I think that's why some people have really enjoyed me as an employee because I would treat it as if it was my business. But in some instances, when I reflected, in particular in one of my first jobs, I realized after seven years that I'd been treading water and I hadn't gained seven years of experience. I probably gained about three. And then I had the fourth year for, you know, repetitions of the same year over and over again. And I wasn't evolving. And I realized that when I went to coffee competitions. I realized that what I was contributing and it wasn't changing with where the competition was moving. And so I'm constantly reminded of that, that I don't want to tread water anymore, that I really want to push myself to be uncomfortable and moving forward. So, you know, that's why I got into judging because the test, you know, that calibration and having to do it and and be under the microscope, not just the barista, but the judge was something that really pressed me. And then I guess then once you start getting put into, you know, those larger, those big deals with coffee where you're trying to really sell somebody where they say they, they're going to pay this low amount for coffee, you need to convince them that this is specialty, this is real, this is, this is a quality, this is a taste, this is a, a conscious decision to do something amazing. That's a real test. So I think most definitely, I don't really mind about failure. Failure is fantastic and any entrepreneur who are far more skilled than myself would tell you that that's where they had their greatest learnings. But my greatest learnings have really been about reflecting on when I'm stationary and I don't want to be stationary. I want to keep moving forward because I'm not being challenged. Then I have to question myself, am I contributing? You know, am I giving to those people around me? Because you blink and you know, opportunities can be passing you by. Any specific skills that you would have focused on, learned earlier? I was a languages student and I studied French and Chinese through school. I think I definitely should have carried my Chinese language skills a lot more closely along the way. I think there was a study the other day that said that only something in the order of around 100 or so people in Australia can comprehensively speak Chinese Mm. to do business that are non-Chinese speakers. And in a country where we have 25 million odd people, where Asia is on our doorstep, and we don't know a second language. I mean, you, you look at Europe, the prevalence of second, third, or fourth languages is, is enormous. So I think for me, because I'm, a, I guess, a, a connector of sorts and I engage with people a lot, when you can't speak or understand somebody else's language, that's an inhibitor to connecting. So for me, certainly, I try and work at it where I can, but I would still re- 
you know, sort of somewhat amateurish, but I make the effort and I, I do wish I became fluent in a second language because I, I just think it's so important to our ability to live in other people's shoes a little bit more, especially in a country where, where Asia is such a focus in, in our economies. What single tip would you give to someone entering the coffee industry today? I would say ruthless focus, and I gained that notion from Salvatore Malatesta. That is something that I learned very much the hard way, but ruthless focus is so essential in order to continually drive yourself and then couple that with a relentlessness, and that being you just don't give up. You never give up. No is simply another step on the journey forward And it doesn't matter how many times people say, no, I don't want that coffee or no, I won't buy that or no, I won't do this. Find a way. As I said, if you are ruthlessly focused on what you're doing, and sometimes it's to the detriment of family and friends, but if you're driven to make a career, most people would say that those things are the hallmarks of success for many people, that there's an element of selfishness to it. And I'd probably round it out with never forgetting a sense of empathy for people can never be lost in order for you to be truly connected to what you do. I think empathy as opposed to sympathy is something that I see as being something I try and cultivate in myself in having an EQ being a little bit higher. And it certainly helps me to make, I think, better decisions. And that'll probably round it out. So that would be ruthless focus, never giving up, and also having a sense of empathy at the end of the day to understand those around you and be able to walk a mile in their shoes. Thanks very much, Ross. That was absolutely wonderful. My absolute pleasure, Jeff. Thank you for listening. We hope you got as much out of this as we did. If you have any feedback, we'd love to hear your thoughts at worldcoffeeportal slash fifth wave. This podcast was recorded in the one and only Serendipity Studios in glorious Camden, North London. It was produced by myself, Jeffrey Young, the World Coffee Portal team, James Harper of Filter Productions, and in sound engineering by Chris Brister. The theme music is Cold Coffee, written by Gort McDermott, and interpreted by Matt Kent for the Coffee Music Project. Have a great week, and until next time, stay safe and stay caffeinated. Stay caffeinated.